All right, welcome to the Max Effort Kitchen Podcast. We've got a great interview for you today, so sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome to Max Effort Kitchen. I'm your host, Chef Matt. I am joined by probably one of the coolest people I've met as of, as of recently, um, Jess Johns Green. Thank you so much for uh, you know coming on the show and talking. I found your, uh, I don't know, I think I found your Instagram first, and then I went to your website, and then I went to every aspect of what you have. Um, Talk a little bit about what you do and who you are. Tell the world. <laughs> oh, this is a sweet introduction. I just feel like soaking that in for a second. That's really <laughs> um, yeah, I'm I'm a licensed professional counselor and licensed in Texas. Um, so I help people with their mental health. Um, outside of that. Um, I teach yoga and I'm also a master's weightlifter. Um, and a, a lot of my focus of my work in, in the therapy room is around eating disorders. I, I service all, all kinds of things, you know, but, um, eating disorders has been a big focus for probably the last 10 to 13 years. I've probably been in working in mental health for about 15 years plus, but, um, probably 10 to, yeah, maybe 13 years now, um, eating disorders has, has formed a big part of that. Um, but within eating disorders, also just, um, you know, just issues with body and food generally, right, which overlaps with um, the yoga part. And also, I don't I don't do any coaching anymore, but I used to do some CrossFit coaching and um, some weightlifting coaching. Now I just like to be coached rather than to do I can coaching. totally, I can totally uh, agree with you on that one. I've done both and just being coached is so refreshing. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it allows you to just enjoy your time. Right. Lifting. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. So in a nutshell, that's, that's what I do. That's where I, that's where I am. Well, I will say that you're being a little modest. Um, when I was, when I was doing my research, research for the show, I mean, I probably could have wrote two full pages of your resume. Um, so licensed uh, counselor, yoga instructor, master weightlifter. You have a blog, which is excellent, by the way. Something I like about your blog is it's very approachable and very readable. I think there's a lot of blogs out there that might try to put too many words into things. You're very mm -hmm. precise. So I really enjoy that. Um, your website, you are a cycling instructor, uh, USAWL1 coach, like you said, there was one thing that I found that really stuck out to me throughout my, all my research with you. You are a healer who is healing. And mm. that, that quote really um, stuck with me. And I really liked that. And I was wondering if you could kind of go into, you know, um, as, as deep as you want and as not deep as you want and what that means to you. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I, I really say to people when I talk about this stuff that, um, you know, well, a, a couple things, really. I could go down a bunch of different avenues. But, you know, when it comes to um, weightlifting, athleticism, I would say that 
weightlifting saved my life. Literally yeah. saved yeah. my life. That's awesome. Um, yeah. Um, you know, like a lot of people, it was generally kind of, am I allowed to cuss on here? Is Absolutely. Pe- yeah. No, okay. no, no. Do, say, like I said, be as candid and, and open <laughs> as you would like. Yes. Uh, the odd F-bomb does come out. Yes. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think the most honest word is, you know, like a lot of people, I was, you know, pretty fucked up yeah. mentally in, in many, many ways in my life. Um, and that and, and that kind of, you know, effed upness really did lead me into an interest in psychology. Um, I, I went to school quite late in life comparatively. I started working, thought I don't want to do this university thing. I'm done with this junk. I'm out of here. And then in working really found, okay, just a curiosity about how people work. Really, which I think came from an understanding that I myself was curious about how I worked. I didn't I didn't understand myself, right? So this leads down study and whatever. I became a mature student. Um, right. really got involved in um, psychology and then ended up going to grad school. And, um, you know, that kind of helped to understand some of the fucked upness, um, you know, started seeing a counselor. But as life does, you know, when you haven't learned a lesson really well, it's going to send you, you know, lots of other lessons until you fall flat on your face and you have to figure it out. Um, What happened to me um, that I think really led me to deeper into this healing and um, really led me to weightlifting was, you know, really big tragedy for my family. Um, My husband and I... um, got pregnant in early, you know, 2010, 2011, um, with twins. Wow. Um, the pregnancy was fabulous. Um, I couldn't really complain about anything, even though I was big as a house, everything was fine. (laughs) Right. Um, come the day of, you know, booking into the hospital, I was experiencing really weird pain. Um, because I was booked in for um, what they call an elective C-section and they just wanted to get, they, yeah. due to like kind of clinical guidance, they wanted to get the babies out when they were kind of like a certain size to not right. put us at risk. I happened to be having pain. I think they were just a bit dismissive and they were just like, you know, um, you'll be fine. We'll get to you in a minute. I ended up sitting around in this pain for about five hours, not wow. being checked. Wow. By the time they got to us, um, There was just a huge, um, I don't know, I was kind of out of it, but my husband described was, uh, you know, just blood all over the floor as they were trying to kind of prepare me for the C-section. By the time he came in, there was just a huge puddle of blood covering the floor. And they figure now, they don't really know, but they figure now what probably happened is possibly a placental abruption. Mm. Anyways, both babies were in a very um, bad state, you know, they had to be resuscitated. They were basically without oxygen and they were, they were dying. Yeah. They managed to resuscitate both of the babies. Um, one of them ended up faring a lot worse than the other. And after being alive for 12 days, he passed away. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. No. Yeah. It's, you know, I'm proud of my, I can say this without like (laughs) right now. It's okay to, but it, you know, it's, it's been a long journey. There's been times when I would even just gloss over this. But the truth of the matter is I was, you know, here in this position where um, burying one child whilst having to turn on all those mom things mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. another baby, not wanting him to suffer 
but really being, you know, just completely emotionally, psychologically, as well as physically completely broken. Um, my husband often reminds me how like, I, I forget about this, but I almost, I was very close to dying as well. I was so adrenalized and focused on keeping them alive. I had lost so much blood. I, you know, kind of forget about that. They kind of sewed me up the best they could. And I, the way it worked, this is in England where we, we were living. My husband is British. I trained in England. I was living in the UK and how they worked it was the baby who was worse off had to be sent to one hospital that was about an hour and a half drive away from where we were. Yeah. So every day I would be driving, see the one baby Mm -hmm. who was also in neonatal intensive care, go and drive an hour and a half to try to catch the other baby and speak to the doctors there the whole time in the car, trying to do all the things I could, like trying to breast pump and blah, I don't know, TMI, like massive right. TMI for the hey, here. Totally but, understand. Um, yeah. That's the truth. Um, and, you know, meanwhile, somehow dealing with that, trying to eat, trying to, you know, just survive, mental health was just out the window, you yeah. know. But I knew in my soul by the time that um, our, our one little baby had passed away. Mm -hmm. I knew that I had to do something extraordinary in order to be mom, in order to be, you know, um, to keep the marriage together even, right. To to keep the family going. I had to somehow hold that grief as well as be compassionate and loving. Um, so just so happened, um, you know, during, during that time. So I was, I was trained as a psychologist in the UK and I'd obviously taken a break to give birth. Mm -hmm. Um, Already in my life, I had been feeling very strongly that, you know, psychological, emotional health is vital, but there's something important about the physical health that I was missing in the therapy room. And so just as a kind of a something, you know, out of just interest, out of a hobby, I started training as a personal trainer before I got pregnant, but I hadn't had a chance to use it. After the pregnancy and everything went terrible, I thought, I'm just going to step away from therapy for a minute because I can't deal with other people's problems right now. I need to just, you know, recover. I thought, I'll work as a personal trainer. Um, Maybe I'll do that a little bit. And it just so happened that down the street from me, literally walking distance, someone had opened up something called CrossFit. And <laughs> well, I think every weightlifting story for women yeah, starts like, yeah. rise up and I found CrossFit. Yep. Um, so this is 2012 in the United Kingdom. CrossFit was not the big thing that it was becoming in the U.S. It was still very small. It was very hard to find a CrossFit place outside of maybe big cities, you right. know, so I was like, I don't know what this is, CrossFit. Um, and one of the ladies in one of the baby groups that I met said, you should go down there. You know, he might be looking for a personal trainer. Maybe you could kind of, you know, dip your toes in there and walked in. And well, I mean, the rest is history. If you've ever been to CrossFit, you know, it's like, yep. I just got sucked in. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was kind of, you know, just to keep myself a little bit busy now and again, seeing some training, doing some clients as a personal trainer, um, but really getting into the CrossFit stuff and and the barbell particularly, like, you know, gymnastics and burpees, blah, blah, blah. But the barbell stuff I really loved. And the reason why I say it saved my life is because 
I didn't really know what I needed, right? I right. knew that I right. had a certain degree of psychological fucked upness from mm-hmm. before all this happened. Then mm-hmm. <laughs> right. this piled on, right? And what that time gave me was just, you know, um, you know, sometimes just to kind of switch off a little bit. I didn't have to think someone else was telling you this is what you're just going to do. Um, the weightlifting coach that I had there was just a beautiful human being. Um, Darren Houghton still coaches in Colchester weightlifting all over there in the UK. And he, um, was just kind of very, um, very light personality, but very clear about what he wanted from you, right? You're just going to do this. And, um, so it became almost like a therapeutic thing to go to a weightlifting club <clears throat> two, three times a week, do these, try to do these movements, the snatch and stuff that I just was impossible for me to do. I was already an older athlete compared to some of the people there, just impossible to do it, but just, um, in love with the feeling of not just, you know, the escape that I needed, but also the feeling of, wow, I can do things that I didn't realize that I could do, right? right? That it's, right. you can put in, time, concentration, and effort. There's abilities there they didn't realize. And, um, yeah, so I would say it saved my life, you know, because outside of that, the only way that I had found to really manage was, um, you know, it sounds cliche, but it's true. Just literally crying in the shower. Once baby was in bed, just cry. Mm -hmm. Um, I would be very detached from others because I'd be so turned um, had to be so so on to be happy and everything for baby that once baby was asleep or once I had a break, I was just turned off, you right. know, just like a zombie, um, you know, and really, you know, feeling very drawn towards like addictive things. Mm. And, you know, I mean, hands up, like CrossFit was maybe not the healthiest thing ever for me right Right. but it on the range of things that i felt drawn to an addictive way that was probably the better thing (laughs) that's funny you know know, really like like a catalyst almost yeah yeah Mm -hmm. towards healing yeah because and and it, it really did demand you know speaking of like bringing in food now as well you know i was either you know, through pain and, and just not being connected with my body, not eating at all or right. eating way too much of just the wrong things, not getting any nutrition. You know, at one point I looked at myself and said, wow, I've survived on literally toast with various toppings, yep. like long, not actually had a meal. Yeah. And so CrossFit with its demands and then weightlifting as well. Um, provided a way for me to have to think about how I'm treating my body, but without a focus on shape and weight necessarily. Mm-hmm. I know that that can be in there in CrossFit, but particularly the, that's what drew me in with the weightlifting. It didn't really matter if you were a bigger weightlifter, if you were a smaller weightlifter. Right. It didn't matter if you had the abs. Yeah. It didn't matter. What mattered is how are you going to perform? Can you perform well in this weight class? And that's where you belong, right? And mm-hmm. um, yeah, so I feel like I'm kind of... Um, spiraling around but I feel like without that there was definitely times when I felt like um maybe this sounds like a crazy thought now but just honestly truthfully I thought like maybe you know my husband is here and he's alive Mm -hmm. one of my babies is dead maybe I should end my life Mm -hmm. so that I can go off into whatever beyond is out there into the ether and find my baby and care for him and then my husband can be here to 
be left to care for the, you know, alive baby. And I know that sounds a bit fruity now, but this is honestly no. the places my mind is going. Yeah, yeah. You know, and through, you know, the community of weightlifting, through, um, you know, the self-discovery that it demanded to really, you know, just keep showing up, um, I think it really did save my life. You know, that's, that's really cool. First of all, thank you for sharing that. That, I mean, you know, anytime you have a story, um, that is as hard as that to talk about or to, to maybe even relive, like, um, it takes a lot of courage and mm. you know, so thank you. Um, and I think courage is a very, um, a little bit of an overused word, but it does take a certain person to be able to talk about their story. And that's what we're doing here. Um, so how, okay. I think that when we get into, um, eating as an athlete and I'm going to mm. kind of switch gears here, like going into eating as an athlete, I think, um, I felt, and I might've said this when I commented is that athletes kind of get automatically ruled out of eating disorder or yeah. like you have an eating problem. You're like, Oh well, yeah, well I'm an athlete. I can just eat what I want or I don't have to eat because I'm an athlete. I'm cutting. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to that, um, what is, what does that mean to you? When somebody says, so when somebody says to you, oh yeah, yeah, it's, it's okay. I'm, I'm cutting for, uh, you know, a competition, but you can, you know them or not, but what, what does that mean to you? How, how does that fit into your world? Yeah. I mean, it's a really tough thing and I really understand how, you know, not just coaches, but also clinicians, doctors, physicians, even therapists, psychologists um, can miss things, you know, not through intention, but just because, yeah. I mean, one thing I will say is like disordered eating is everywhere, right? Yeah. I, I would be hard pressed to find a single individual who has zero issues with food. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and particularly in our Western society, I don't know. I mean, that's where my experience is. So maybe I'm more prepared to comment on it. But when, you know, when I drive down the, the main road that is right here outside my house, everything is a drive through. Everything is a convenient food. Everything is quick and easy. And I think that particularly here in America and in, in most Western places, um, we are not used to connecting with food in a healthy way. Ah. So we don't enjoy the process of like um, having to really think about what is this doing to my health, my wellness, my body. We don't like to even just get involved with the process of preparing the food, buying the food, cooking the food and cleaning up afterwards. All those <laughs> things we want to, we want to just get it, eat it and be mm -hmm. done with it. Right. Mm -hmm. But yeah, with, with eating disorders and athletes, yeah, for sure. Like athletes are thought to be at greater risk than the rest of the population when it comes to eating disorders. So yeah. you know, on average, maybe roughly an estimate might be that, you know, it, maybe 9% of the world's population may have an eating disorder at some point in their life. Right. But slightly higher for athletes, maybe 13% of all athletes might be thought to have an eating disorder at some point in their life. I think one of the difficulties is how we see an eating disorder, right? So when, if, if we 
if we can kind of think about that an eating disorder is not just someone who looks a certain way, someone who is like a skeleton or something like that, right? Like Mm -hmm. even with us practitioners who work with eating disorders, there's an estimate that only maybe 6% of people with an eating disorder are underweight, right? So that means 94% of people who could have a diagnosable, clinically diagnosable eating disorder are actually of normal weight or maybe even overweight, Yeah. right? And um, so that's something really big to consider. And I think, yeah, in athletics, a lot of the attitudes about eating that um, could fall under a, a, uh, the criteria for a clinical eating disorder, yeah, are easily dismissed as like, um, you know, I'm just getting ready for a competition. You can meet like a, a bodybuilder, for example, yeah. or, 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 or Olympic weightlifter. I need to get in into my weight class. I need to lean up. And then afterwards, there can be extreme eating. And I think some of the questions are, well, like, how is that affecting a person's um, health, for one thing? How is it affecting their mood and their mental health? And, um, you know, can it fit the criteria for a diagnosable eating disorder? It's maybe not as important as what are the long-term sort of um, psychological effects? How is it affecting a person's body image? Right. Um, or body image is maybe too um, cliche, or maybe you know their self-image, their identity. You know, I know. I like am that. I? Feeling, yeah, am I feeling like more? Um, valid or happier when I can see my abs versus mm-hmm. when I'm, yeah. you know, eating how I should. And I think for athletes, even if they're doing it for performance, these things get really, really complicated. So, so I don't know if I'm answering the question. You, told, no, you totally are. You know, I, I try to keep them very open and open-ended because I just want you to basically talk. And, and so, you know, as, as you were talking, a question came up in my head and for people out there that might be listening, like they're like, okay, well, what is a, what, what, at what point do you have a disorder? Like it, what, mm-hmm. where is there a line? Is it subjective? Is it subjective to who's diagnosing you? Like, how do you know if you have a disorder? Yeah, there are some things that would be considered objective, right? And these are maybe the classic eating disorders that we think of when, you know, in, in our kind of stereotypes in our mind. And anorexia is one, yeah. bulimia is another. So those are maybe the most common ones. Right. And if I kind of describe them kind of generally, we might even see how it gets confusing, right? So anorexia is when a person is not meeting their nutritional needs, so mm-hmm. not eating enough. Sometimes the stereotype is that, well, if someone has anorexia, they're not eating at all. Yeah. So I meet many, many people who can fit the the diagnostic criteria for anorexia but are actually eating even three meals a day, just not enough, right? right? Or right. Including enough kinds of foods to that they're not meeting their, their nutritional or their caloric needs. Um, for both anorexia and bulimia, there is they're also characterized by you know sort of a, a, a mindset like a mental drive towards thinness, you know, an uncomfortableness with the size or shape of their body, and 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 feeling that if I don't achieve a certain size or shape, I'm not going to be happy. And anorexia is sometimes characterized too with kind of a disconnection, so not being really very sure on how. Um, thin they've become, for example, right? Or, or even, you know, there are people who can be diagnosed with anorexia who maybe have a bigger body size and, and are not kind of aware of 
the size or shape of their body. It's almost like they can't see themselves in the way others see them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, there's, but with both of those, there's a lot of mental distress. But certainly I think, yeah, there can be times when athletes, you know, maybe not for a long period of time or maybe for a long period of time severely restrict what they're eating. And um, we can't tell from the outside. Correct. You know, I can think of people who I've even met in the weightlifting community who, you know, when they're um, having their, their nutrition looked at by a nutritionist are shocked to find out, wow, I'm really under eating by a lot of calories and they don't look like it. They have stacked, you know, thighs. They're looking like they have muscle, but the body is an amazing thing. Yep. We are really built to survive all kinds of variations of food availability. So you can be very restrictive with your eating and you can be at your doctor and they can say your blood is, test is fine, your weight is normal, right? And it, all these things can get, get missed because the body is finding ways to compensate, wow. you know? Wow. Yeah. That's pretty intense to think about because, um, you know, if – so I've been part of communities on both sides of the, of the spectrum here where, you know, um, in CrossFit it was like, well – what do you, okay, you're not performing. What are you eating? You know, one of the first questions from any coach and from myself as being a coach is like, we want to know what you're eating. You're, you're Mm -hmm. not performing properly. First question. Well, what's your diet like? And Mm -hmm. I've really tried to, um, change up my way now, just to give you a little bit of what I do as far as coaching. Um, you know, I told you in the beginning, I, I did some, uh, some CrossFit coaching and so on. I moved into, uh, coaching kids with disabilities that are special needs. And so we talk a lot about like what you're eating and how, you know, well, what did you eat today? That's, I I like try to keep things very like, um, in the moment because too many times I've, I've heard it and I've been told it like, well, you're not eating enough food. Okay. So I'm going to go out and I'm going to have a bowl of chili for at home and I'm going to eat two Big Macs on my way home. And then, you know, because in my head, you know, being a chef, I'm like, okay, well, let's just put the food in. I have access to food 24 seven, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think as coaches, we, there needs to be a responsibility to understand your athlete and their lifestyles and what they're going through. And, and almost, I hate to say it, but almost a little bit of their mental health before you start talking about like, what are you eating? What are you eating? Like yeah. your food, because it can, food can, um, do so many great things for you. Like you said, the human body is amazing. Mm-hmm. It can fuel yeah. you, but it all, it can also really damage you. And so, yeah. um, I, I, I really liked what you said. And I think, um, the idea of being a coach and having, using the right words and having the right, um, intention instead of yeah. just saying, you're not eating enough. Go eat some more food. You know, that's, right. I've seen that create problems and it, it's, it's kind of sad. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Especially with like some of the ways that, um, people just in the general populace sort of start to believe about exercise, yeah. right? Yeah. But, you know, the idea that you're working off a calorie or you're going to, you know, improve your body shape through exercise, I think is a very twisted way, you know, the human body needs to move. (laughs) It needs to be as strong as possible. But the idea that you're going to sculpt your way or, 
you know, cardio your way or lift your way into some awesome physique, I think is something that is fed to us, especially through social media, but also through, you know, um, you know, gym and health club advertisers through, you know, you know, um, uh, what do you call it? Fitness apparel advertisers. That's a big one. Yeah. Right. All these kind of things. And, and even through food companies, you know, and it really goes in with, um, you know, that, the so anorexia, but bulimia is the idea that, you know, maybe kind of, you know, is one of those things that can be exacerbated by, by a coach making a comment, like you say, right, you need to eat more. So what people can do, yeah, like you're saying, just eat, eat, eat. And then, the workout becomes kind of a compensation. So bulimia is all about that, where bulimics have periods of lots of food, you know, and then periods where they're compensating in some way. Now, typically we think of bulimics as vomiting their food or using laxatives to get rid of their food. But over-exercise is also a strategy, a compensatory strategy for bulimics. So many, many people that I meet, when they talk about, oh, I have pizza last night, I'm going to work it off. I'm like, <laughs> alarm bells ringing, right? You, know? you just blew my mind right there because like, it's so absolutely true what you just said. Like how many times do you, I, I don't know about you, but I hear a lot like, oh man, I'm going to eat, I'm going to have this lunch and it's going to be amazing, but it's okay. Cause I'm going to go work out. Right. What's the it's, difference? Yeah. Like, Oh, yeah. Wow. We're not built to work that way. We're we are built really we are built to when there's food availability, our brains are wired to get as much as we can right. because we don't right. you know how the human race survived is there will be times when there's a lot and there's times when there's none. So Correct. you're gonna get it while you can. Yep. We also are built to to move and to work and to be able to, you know, do all the things that we need to do to survive. But the idea that we need to work off our food, that is a strictly weird modern concept that <laughs> yeah. is, you know, bizarre or to earn our food, you know? Now that, uh, that goes into yeah. uh, a whole area of shame when you have to earn your food, you know, like food is readily available. You know, we, we are humans, we create food and the idea of I don't deserve or I need to earn food is just such a damaging statement. And I, I, I personally don't know how to fully take the emotion out and combat against that when I hear it. Um, and it's more like, okay, let me, I, I have a, I have a strict, uh, rule within my, my life was when I hear something that is like that and I want to emotional react, emotionally react, I pause because I'm like, I, I I don't want to be aggressive on my reaction and, and create maybe an adverse effect. But the the idea that we should be shaming anybody about what they eat or how they eat is is definitely not what it's about. It's just I, I like to have a saying of where I say, you know, um match your the way you eat with the way you train and in a way that's just saying to me that's saying fuel fuel your body, um enjoy your food and have the ability and the, um, the energy to go out and lift weights or do whatever makes you happy, run, you know, a marathon. I, I just, the idea uh, that food is only allowed when we hit that platform or when we hit the road is it, it, it hurts. It hurts when I hear yeah. people say that. So, yeah. um, I'm going to switch gears a little bit here into more of, of, of a mental health aspect. And I wanted to talk to you about this because I, I saw a couple of shorts that you did on your Instagram, but in your opinion, talk about the relation of like, 
um, performers. And when I say performers, I mean like athletic, musicians, maybe uh, theater art performance and mental health and, and how those two things relate in your world. Um, yeah. Um, you know, cause it, it takes, it takes a different kind of person, you know, uh, different kinds of sometimes qualities, if you will, mental, yeah. um, resources, also, you know, physical resources to be able to put yourself in a position where you are challenged. Right. Yeah. And, and you're maybe pushed to your limits, um, and those qualities that allow a person to be that kind of human being also have a dark side, right? So, <laughs> that they do. Uh, yep. Yeah. So there's a there's a beautiful thing about it, and there's a difficult thing about it. Interestingly, this is also some of the sometimes um, similar traits that feed into things like eating disorders. Yeah. So very often when you meet someone who has the ability to perform at some kind of high level, be it an athlete or a, some kind of, you know, musician or actor or, um, you know, in the corporate world as well, yeah. these people have these qualities that allow them to do that, but can also lead to, um, you know, a lot of self-criticism, a lot of maybe, you know, mental distress when, um, you know, there's things that they can't overcome, right? And then we manage sometimes mood through other sort of um, potentially unintentional, but, you know, unintentionally negative, but, you know, unhelpful behavior. So right. these same people are more prone to eating disorders and addictions yep. and, um, you know, other sorts of strategies to keep emotions controlled because their main strategy, which is sometimes a positive to control emotions is, well, what can I do to make it better? Right. right? If I'm not performing well, if I don't like, you know, what's happening in my career, if I don't like what's happening in my weightlifting, in my dance, in my whatever it is, what do I do to make it better? And then they have that, that same drive to really push themselves to do it where some people might be, and it's not a wrong thing either, right? For some people to be like, well, that's how it is. I'm going to find some other way to, you know, <laughs> yeah. deal. Yeah. With There's nothing wrong with that too. Not the world all. needs, yeah. sports, needs yeah. all sorts. But that same kind of drive is what can lead to someone being like, okay, there's no answer for this uncomfortable feeling or this, you know, difficult situation. I know what I can do. I can control how I look. I can control oh. what kind of food I put in my body, you know? Yeah. No, that's really neat. Um, you, you're, you, do some, you just said something that I really believe in, which is um, stop trying to control the outside world and just control right here. And, and yeah. that, and that really helps, uh, you know, I have to remind myself of that. Um, I have people I work with that I try to remind of that as like, you know, only control what you can control, which is yourself, you know, your reactions, your, um, your addictions, your ability to, you know, wake up every morning, put the, you know, put your clothes on and walk out the door and be driven and, you know, be positive. And that's one thing that, I really, um, I like to, I, I don't like using the word preach, but I like to really just reiterate like positivity. Um, yeah. the, we, we are on this earth for however long we're on this earth, but like, why, why not take the opportunity to be positive from the start and see where that lands us? Not mm -hmm. saying that we're not going to, you know, meet any challenges in our day because as, as athletes, as um, professionals in our industry, like challenges come you know, on the second sometimes, 
mm-hmm. and being able to um, uh, attack them with um, a strong mind is really helpful. And it's funny because I was talking to a friend the other day and we were talking about therapy in, in, in general. And he's like, I am so scared of therapy. And I'm the polar opposite. I said, well, when I walk into a ther- my therapist, I just, I mean, I word vomit. <laughs> I see a therapist, I word vomit. I'm like, oh my God, hold on. <laughs> okay. Boudica, I'm sorry. No, hold you're on. okay. You're okay. It's all good. What's his or her name? I have, um, I have Boudica. Come here. You want to see? Yes. This is the barky one. Oh, love it. And this is, um, come here, Sid. Wow. Awesome. Sydney's a little bit newer. Yeah. Sydney, um, he, we, we went to the, the dog, whatever it is, the, the pound or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, um, he was sitting there looking all quiet and sweet. And then when we got him home, we realized he's a terrorist. Um, <laughs> and that was, just a, that was just a little act that he put on. I'm so quiet oh, and sweet. Yeah. Sounds like but my he's, eight-year-old. He's, he's a great little guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. I'm sorry, though. You were saying, like, you go no. into your therapist. Yeah. So, so, like, when I walk into a therapist, I, you know, I was a complete opposite of him of, like, I just word vomit. I just tell you my life story and everything you want to know about me. And, and let's just, let's do the thing. Um, but I, I just, um, as a, a therapist and somebody who is an athlete, how do you, how do you, how do you combat that? Like when, when you, you see all kinds of different people, is, is it more of, are you reading your room? Are you, you know, following a, a book or a, a, a textbook? Like, what is your train of thought when you're uh, um, approaching a new client? Mm. Yeah. Like it really depends, you know, yeah. <laughs> it really, yeah. really it's, depends. it's not, there's not a right answer here. So yeah. yeah. As many different human beings as they, I mean, there's certain sort of, you know, practical bits that need doing, you know, you need yeah. to cover confidentiality and that kind of thing. Um, but really, yeah, it is. I guess reading, a, reading a room is really a good way to put it. There is something that happens between people that you can't really learn in a book. Like they try to teach it to you in, in a book way, you right. know, like it, what they might call it, you know, how, therapeutic alliance or the therapeutic relationship. And they try to teach therapists this, but there's something very kind of energetic, right? Um, very, um, very felt that, that happens between people. And there's sort of a sense when someone first comes in that um, I think I think kind of maybe how I was going to describe that what what happens is I listen with my ears and I, I I also am observing you know what is happening in their body expression, their face, how they're sitting. But there's also a felt sense of like what does it feel like to be here? And and, and part of that is you know me, me trying to maybe put myself in their shoes. How would I, how would I feel if I was you know, basing it off kind of a shared humanity kind of feeling like if I had that situation, what might it be like for me? But then there's also a feeling of, you know, 
when they're describing what's going on, or even maybe if they're sitting in silence, what kind of things are coming up for me? It sounds like magic, but it's really not. And I think most people, if you start to really tune into yourself, your feelings, your reactions, you're going to notice sometimes when you're with certain people, you feel a kind of you know, sometimes like, a, for lack of a better word, kind of like a fuck off vibe, yeah, right? Yeah, Sometimes absolutely. like a come closer vibe. And some sometimes that feeling is coming from you. It's your feeling, right? right? Your reaction, something you're reacting to in them. Absolutely. But sometimes it's going to be almost like a telepathy in a way, right? Like you're reading their energy and you're reading it correctly. And really it's only through, you know, just taking time to um, sit with yourself feel yourself, um, kind of, you know, check things out, you know, was that feeling really me or was it them? And really to know yourself, right? When you know your history, your past, your traumas, um, and you've taken time to really heal from those, then it becomes a little bit more simple to know like, okay, this feeling I'm having is not coming from me. This is a, this is something that they are unconsciously communicating or that their body is communicating with me. Um, so I don't know. I don't want to scare anyone off. I no. think sometimes the worst, worst fears that people have is the therapist can read my mind. No, the therapist cannot read your mind. Right? <laughs> I they wish can. they could. I wish they could. Yeah, <laughs> wish, Make right? it a lot easier. I mean, so much easier. Yeah. But we all are, as human beings, are picking up on signals and signs from others because we we are built to connect. Yeah. Um, so, so even even the, even as a new client, people might come in and might get like a vibe from a therapist. Okay, this person is not for me. Hey, that's okay. Either talk about with it, that with the therapist. Maybe there's something to iron out, or maybe just find someone else. Because if you're getting that vibe, your body's telling you something, right? Yeah, and it, yeah. It gives you some important information. Yeah, yeah. So let's uh, let's move into recovery. Um, is it safe to say that recovery is is a, a tool in life and not just athletics? Or not just mental health, but it's a it's a tool in life. What what do you think about that? Yeah, like recovery in like in what sense? What are you thinking about there? Just um, you know, when I think okay, so when I think recovery, um, my my I go to okay, uh, how am I going to recover after that hard workout? Right. Right. How am I going to okay? So then and then I'm like okay, how am I going to recovery recover after maybe an argument with my wife, or mm. how am I going to recover after making, you know, a mistake in my, in, in my profession and maybe, uh, to a point where it costs a, an experience of a customer. Like re- so recovery really have happens everywhere in life. Um, but when somebody is having a hard time with recovery, you know, what, what are some steps that you usually take to, to get that, um, that chain to kind of link up? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, again, I would just go back to, you know, knowing ourselves, our body awareness, body awareness, without kind of trying to sound too like, you know, all roads lead back to the same. But when it comes to like everything, you know, disorders, how our athletic performance, our healing our recovery, it all goes back to, well, how much can we stay connected with ourselves? Right. And so, yeah, because recovery from all of those different kinds of things might look different, might feel different. And depending on that person's sort of personal resources, their experience, whatever it is, recovery behaviors might might look different. But it's all going to depend on us knowing, Okay, what do I need and how do we know? 
what we need unless we're used to listening. Exactly. That You know, the fact you're asking this question makes me think that you are closer to yoga than, than you realize. <laughs> you, are, you are getting there. Maybe, maybe mentally... <laughs> Physically, I'm just, I mean, I'm like within my, within three minutes, I am dripping sweat. So I'm getting there. I'm working on it. I'm putting 15 minutes a day towards it. And that's, that's a good start for me. So, yeah. Um, well, okay. So we're coming up on a little bit of time here and just, I want to, first of all, thank you a million times. This has been, um, so enlightening. It's been such a great experience. Um, I, I am a big advocate of just connecting with people and this is, this is my forum to connect. Um, so thank you. Um, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Um, and where can, where can people find you? So yeah, I'm, I'm online. I have a website, justjohnsgreen.com. Mm-hmm. Um, um, my information there, there's a contact form if you need. Um, I'm on Instagram, um, at justjohnsgreen. Um, and I see clients at, uh, the counseling center at Cinco Ranch, which is located in Katy, Texas. Um, but for Texas residents, we also, I am able to do telehealth, um, appointments. So if it feels, um, like something that you want and you're not local, there's that as well. Um, in terms of, you know, uh, things other than therapy. So if it's coaching around, you know, mental health or mental approach, um, that's more open outside of Texas. So yeah. Um, look me up. Awesome. Okay. I always end the show with, um, three just completely random questions. I'm going to keep them around food just because I'm always interested in how other people eat. So I want you to tell me, uh, your favorite meal to eat, cook and serve. So mm. it could be three. It could all be one. It's all uh, That's tough one. There are so many meals that are my favorite to eat. Um, I think at the moment, my favorite is uh, my husband makes this uh, like chili beef thing nice. that is basically very thin, small cuts of beef that's breaded and seasoned and Ooh. fried up. He makes this like Chinese e Asian-y kind of orange, sticky, sugary sauce. And I love it. Noodles and, oh, it's great. That sounds yeah, fantastic. It's great. What about cook? So favorite to cook. Um, I like to cook a good paella. That's oh, always I love it. Love it. Yeah. Cool. I like to chuck in lots of different things in there. And um, it's also something, too, that, like, even if I don't have a lot of things, you can make a simple one. You know, it just feels, yeah, it feels like an event when you're making a paella. That's yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Now, um, as far as, well, I guess you, yeah, you hit it all. So, okay. Thank you. This has been amazing. This is awesome. I'm oh, so glad we got to connect. Um, and are you doing any uh, national masters events coming up soon? Um, I need to get some event under my belt to qualify. Yeah, okay. uh, okay. I, I will be kind of doing that. I, after the, what did I last want to do? AO finals in December. I kind of right. just been training and just focusing on fixing up my jerk, which is a little bit annoying. <laughs> <laughs> it always is, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's always one. Yeah. There's always some problem. Um, you know, but yeah, I, I'll be looking for a platform to get on soon. Yeah, and that's good. That's great to hear. Yeah. Um, if, if you do make a national event, hit me up. I might be going to it. Um, I try to make some of them. I'm probably going to hit, uh, maybe the Cohen 
I think that's the only na- like major national one. But I like to do I like to travel around and do events. So I would love to just say hi in person. So same. Um, yeah, I hope to see you. Absolutely. So um, thank you everybody for listening. Thank you, uh, Jess, and uh, I hope you have a great day. You too. Thanks, everyone.